Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Lots of companies are celebrating anniversaries at the moment, and lots of anniversaries have had to not necessarily be put on hold, but adapted in a different way. One significant anniversary that's happening this year is the kind of the 50th anniversary of the Nimrod Theatre Company, which was a landmark independent theatre company in Sydney whose echoes and kind of the after effects of the explosion, the literary and and theatrical explosion they caused, certainly still being felt because of companies like Griffin and Belvoir in Sydney. Joining me on the line is John Kachoyan, who's the literary manager of Australian plays, a publisher of Australian play texts, to tell us about the recently launched Nimrod 50 collection. John, thanks for joining us on Smart Arts. Good morning. Thanks for having me. A very great pleasure. So, before we talk about the scripts individually, kind of tell us a little bit more for people who don't know about Nimrod. Why, why celebrate the 50th anniversary of this company? Why were they so significant? So Nimrod's a fascinating company, not only because of the work that it did, but because of the seeds that it planted, in, in particularly in the Sydney theatre scene, where I'm originally from. You know, artists that worked at the Nimrod go on to found STC, Griffin, what becomes Belvoir. So really significant theatre makers, but it, it was really responsible for an explosion of new Australian work and a, a fledgling network between various cities. So it presented a lot of work from La Mama, for example. So it was a real renaissance and a bursting forth of Australian talent. So it's something that 50 years on, we want to celebrate and we want to dig into the less known or less celebrated works. Now, there's a bit of a, I guess, a view. I don't know whether it's a myth or not, and I'll get you to answer that, that kind of companies like La Mama in the 60s and then Nimrod kind of from in the 70s and so forth, there's this grappling with what it means to be Australian and putting Australian voices and Australian vernacular on stage. Is it a myth to say that they were really responsible for giving us theatre that spoke with an Australian accent? Look, there there is a history of Australian writers before the 50s, really, um, and particularly female writers, that sort of adds a little complexity to that idea. But, but generally, the first time anyone really would have seen our voice or what was, you know, an Australian voice at that time would have been on the stages at places like La Mama and, and Nimrod. It was not only Australianised Shakespeare's, but, you know, really groundbreaking kind of vaudeville, energetic, dirty, interesting kind of works that, yeah, well, would have been revolutionary considering that every actor would have spoken in a kind of cod RP. Almost all our theatres were either run or set up by visiting British directors, including obviously the MTC. So it's a really interesting time, I think. And we would understand Nimrod now as an independent theatre. It's easy to sort of forget that it was a bunch of people not getting paid a lot, scraping together resources, you know, Ken Haller and Lillian Haller and those sort of artists finding resources to support what we would understand as kind of a fringe theatre. And not only staging theatre, but physically making a theatre in a space in Nimrod Street in King's Cross in inner city Sydney, a building which had been a gymnasium, a taxi garage and a stables. It's now known as the Stables Theatre and is the home of the Griffin Theatre Company. But they took this space and created a <laughs> quite a small, awkward little theatre space upstairs with, a, I believe, a pillar in the middle of the room blocking some of the view. Very little head height for people sitting at the back of the room perched on benches looking at this pokey triangular stage but nonetheless 
despite the limitations of the space, there was clearly no limit on the imagination of the actors and the playwrights involved with staging work at Nimrod. Absolutely. And I think that that kite-shaped stage becomes quite iconic. You know, it's replicated at Belvoir, but it's it's venues like the Fairfax as well. It's, it's almost that particularly uniquely Australian arrangement of, of space. But also I think the thing to remember is that there wasn't any architecture around new writing. There weren't prizes and developments and organisations like Australian Plays or Play writing Australia. So really they were making playwrights in the first place, let alone putting on work. They were discovering talent and nurturing people to discover how to be a playwright. And so that's what is always impressive to me about it is that process. There's a lot being said about the personalities and kind of project of Nimrod. But for me and for us at Australian Plays, the playwright is central to that. And there were some extraordinary, extraordinary writers during that time. You're publishing, well, when I say you, uh, Australian Plays, not you personally, uh, all on your, your <laughs> lonesome. But Australian Plays are publishing this collection, the Nimrod 50 collection of previously unpublished out-of-print works or works that have been revisited by the playwrights, so uh, dusting off their original scripts, probably complete with, I don't know, pen scribble to scratch out words and replace them, to, t- to take these really important works that should be part of the canon of Australian playwriting, but for one reason or another have not been seen for for decades. It's a pretty significant undertaking. Yeah, it's been a huge effort by the team in Australian Plays, and it's taken us about two, two and a half years to get this project to this stage. We've had playwrights go through personal archives, we've been in state libraries, we've got wine-stained prompt copies. I've got to talk to some of my heroes, Alma de Groen, Ron Blair, Jack Hibbard, all sorts of amazing people, Anne Harvey, these these great writers. Sometimes it's writers we know, like Jack, but the play might have fallen through the cracks. And other times it's, you know, it's really interesting what works get celebrated and don't get celebrated. So if you think of the kind of Nimrod canon, it really is white, male and middle class. But, at, you know, there were these significant works queer works, cabaret works, works by Indigenous writers. And so that's also something that I kind of want to shine a light back on, that the history is a little bit more complicated than we might remember. And it's always subjective what gets raised up as a good play. Now, it is quite remarkable that, as you say, that for many of the playwrights creating work, particularly in the early days of the the Nimrod Theatre Company, that there was no development, there was no process. They weren't taught. They didn't study script writing at at a university course or anything like that. They just bashed out plays and then if people liked them, the plays were, were put on. Does that mean that the plays that you're publishing are relatively raw and unpolished or are they still have they still, because they've been staged, they've been consequently dramaturged, live in the in the making process in the rehearsal room for example it's a great question it's a it's a real mix there are some works in there that you can feel this extraordinary energy because they didn't go through a process that might have maybe flattened them or dramaturged them to to death and there are others that the writers themselves have been revisiting and reshaping and so it's that's what's really great about the collection and the plays that will continue to be added to it is you never really know some of them have literally never been seen before some of them are the artists themselves revisiting it after you know 45 years or 50 years and others are works that have sort of fallen out of our memory so i really love that mix and that challenge and for me to get to hold Jackie's original copy of something or to talk to Margot Hilton about oh, FF Piano is her nom de plume about Potiphar's wife. These extraordinary works that happened, of course, before long before I was born. It's, it's one of the pleasures of my career and one of the great parts of my job at Australian Plays. 
John, who do you see this collection of scripts being for? Apart from theatre historians and theatre nerds, are these the kind of scripts that a Year 12 drama class might be interested in in staging, for example, or a major theatre company or independent companies around the country? Is this an act more of archiving rather than reviving? Yeah, no, look, Australian plays is is not an archive for me, and, and one of the significant parts of it is, you know, we have already seen script purchases, we've already seen inquiries come in for productions. That's my dream. It's more money for playwrights and more productions of Australian plays. So it's very much a living thing and I think it's a really interesting mix. There are some plays in there that would benefit deep tertiary study. There are some things that would be suitable for schools. There are works that I think should be on stage tomorrow and indeed I have you know as a director I have pitched some of these plays to to companies and so it's a really interesting mix and I hope they get read and I hope they get reproduced because I think we are really forgetful in Australia about our history and we don't look at our own work in the same way we look at the European canon or and I think that's still you know I think we passed the dark days of adaptation etc but I think it's still a really really interesting proposition to say what is it if I treat an Australian work with the reverence of a European work. What is it to look not at View from the Bridge or something like that, but what is it to look at an Australian play and say, what's here and what does it tell us about us and where we are and where we're going? Because I think if we don't do that, you're just constantly reinventing the wheel and that's that's tiring <laughs> and actually maybe not as productive. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with John Kachoyan, the literary manager of Australian Plays, an organisation who publish Australian theatre scripts. You can purchase copies, physical play or a PDF. Uh, you can also access them if you want them for your your school or your university or just to read. Quickly, before I ask you just to tell us about some of the plays that have been published in this, I guess, this first wave of the Nimrod 50 collection, John, what advice do you have for people who've not read plays before? I, I've spoken in the past to people who might read lots of Australian literature, fiction, non-fiction, poetry. They, even some of them, struggle with picking up a script because... They can't read it. They're not used to reading theatre. What's your advice for somebody who wants to pick up a play and read one as just as for entertainment, but if they're not familiar yeah. with it? Because a script can be a, a, a difficult thing to, to, to dive into if you're not familiar with the structure and the style of a play. Yeah, I, I'd be very happy to recommend them the latest issue of Island Magazine, which Australian Plays has just collaborated with Island Magazine in Hobart as a Tasmanian-based organisation. And we published, we commissioned and published three short plays within a literary magazine. And precisely because of this conversation is that the literary and the dramatic worlds tend to be quite separate. And so I suppose my advice would be check that out because it's a really lovely example of dramatic text within a kind of literary context. But I think my two bits of advice are to know that there are in some ways a lot less apparent structural and formal rules to playwriting so it can seem a bit daunting to go well hang on they're all formatted differently or but but to to trust that everything is deliberate on the page and then to go from there to say well what what is the mind at work this this brilliant playwright what are they trying to convey and how do all the choices they've made link into a coherent kind of place and the second thing is just to remember that it's designed to be made and put on and lived. A play is always an unfinished document. Playwriting is a really strange occupation in that you're relying on all these other people to realise your work. It's not a novel. It's not a poem. At the end of the day, there's a kind of pact that we make that says, look, I'll give you this thing. It's never going to be perfect because it needs to be put on stage. Even if the stage is in your mind, I think thinking about how this thing lives and breathes and is live is going to really help you if you are diving into to new writing or to new plays. 
If you want to read some of the plays that have been published as part of the Nimrod 50 collection, jump online, australianplays.org. John, just tell us about some of the, the works that have already been published and also what's to come. I was looking at the list of plays, some already in the Nimrod 50 collection, others coming soon. I'm really, really keen to read the, the script for Basically Black, written by Bob Mazza and Gary Foley, a landmark piece of First Nations theatre. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a really, really great mix of plays, I think, in here. In the first, we've been calling it the first tranche, which isn't particularly helpful for anyone outside of <laughs> outside of our office. But the first collection that we've launched, we've got really interesting plays like Flash Jim Vaux, Ron Blair's play, some Alma de Groen plays, which I'm incredibly proud about. I think Alma is criminally underrated as, as a playwright. The Joss Adams show, which is really beautiful. There's Young Mo, which was a massive play at the time. If you remember the iconic Nimrod designs, they were based on the Young Mo poster for Stephen J. Spears' play. There's also some pretty interesting work. So Potiphar's Wife is a one-hander about a wronged woman. And there's Alison Lice's Pinball as well, which is about an early example of kind of custody rights regarding lesbian, you know, two women and actual verbatim court transcripts so when you read the judge character and think oh wow how gross it's even worse because it's based on on real life there's a really brutal and interesting louis now play in there called inside the island as well which sort of deals with australia's violent history and our habit of erasure and and forgetting so there's a real mix there's a this vaudeville rough as guts shaman boxing tent kind of inheritance from that part of the world and then there's also these plays that are kind of starting to grapple with some real social issues so it's a really really interesting mix and i think the ones that i'm looking forward to seeing are exactly things like basically black we've also got biggles which is the first play to ever open nimrod which we're currently transcribing from individual scanned pages from an archive so there's lots to kind of touch back in on over the next year or so as we push on with the rest of the plays. It's not going to be complete, completely complete because I think we'd all go mad, but if I can add back in some works and we can help celebrate them, then, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> and some of those plays from the, the Nimrod Theatre days are already in print or still in print. So, mm. I mean, I'm just looking at the list. There's some David Williamson in there, for example. There's some Louis Naura. There's some uh, some Jack Hibbert, yeah, as you've Alex mentioned, Bruzzo. Alex Bozo and others. So, But... If people want to learn more about the Nimrod 50 collection published by Australian Plays, jump online, australianplays.org. Buy yourself a script and create theatre in your own mind because if you live here in Melbourne, it's going to be a while before you can get into the theatre again. So this is uh, kind of not the living, breathing theatre in front of you, but kind of your imagination is pretty good. So I reckon if you grab a script and dive into it, you'll be very delighted at what you find. John Kajoyan, thanks so much for joining us this morning. And indeed, thanks for putting together with the rest of the team at Australian Plays, the Nimrod 50 collection. Pleasure. Happy reading, everyone. I'm joined on the line by Fleur Kilpatrick for our fortnightly Shoot the Messenger segment. But Fleur, I forgot to queue up your theme, I'm sorry. so <laughs> That's all good. I think the theme is weirdly violent and terrifying, so I'm fine without it. <laughs> No worries. I, it might be time for a new version of the theme. It's I think very shooty. It is very shooty, yes. And it was originally created ooh, 18 or 19 years ago when the idea yeah. was that the, the presenter in this segment was a critic and it was kind of like yeah. the kind of the anger of artists directed towards critics sometimes. But anyway, yeah. so you... <laughs> Just before I we think go, we inspire a bit less anger these days. Well, you and I, <laughs> you, certainly you and I, not some yeah. other critics. So, Fleur, how are things over in South Australia? 
Good. I'd like to report I'm currently wearing gumboots and pacing through the veggie garden as I speak to you. Yeah, it continues to be quite a nice time to be in South Australia, I must say, but we're all thinking of you and sending you lots of love and gratitude for what you're all doing over in Melbourne. You're doing so well, guys. Oh, so proud. And hopefully not too much longer and we can get out and about. Now, in South Australia, you've already got theatre companies staging work again, State Theatre Company of South Australia. Their production yeah. of Gaslight has completely sold out and with COVID-safe audiences in Her Majesty's Theatre. Brisbane is getting ready to reopen their main stages, so we're getting there. But, Fleur, I... One of the things that I know you wanted to talk about today, often we review work together, but you're also a playwright as well as a theatre commentator. So do you think companies and artists should be perhaps, I don't know, making more of this opportunity, this great pause to rethink how we make theatre, how we make art and why? Absolutely. I love the term the great pause, by the way. I, I think it, in a way, if we frame it in that way, a great pause was really what we needed. My experience of the theatre community in Melbourne last year was exhaustion, was that people were walking around so exhausted. I'm not saying that COVID has refreshed us beautifully, but I think that a pause and a rethink of how we operate was really necessary. So I've taken a lot of delight and I'm also, you know, a PhD candidate and think and I my work and my research is in how we teach care to theatre makers, being care for ourselves, for others and the environment. So to me this feels like an incredibly crucial moment for theatre companies to rethink who they are, who they want to be, who they want to be for. The most basic questions about what theatre is, things we're having to go back over. And a big one that I've been thinking about lately is actually time and how we operate in terms of time. I think that theatre companies, for all that they'd like to be thought of as quite radical, inclusive workplaces in many ways, operate with a really standardised notion of time where we, most main stage companies, rehearse five to six days a week for four weeks, 10am to 6pm. And that straight away excludes a lot of people for whom that form of work just does not work. Well, if you've got um, kids, for example, yeah, yeah, I was just thinking that the idea that if you're expected to, like, yeah, treating, uh, treating theatre like a job, good on one level, mm. but kind of adapting the, the formal structures of the nine-to-five office means that, yeah, if you've got small kids, you might have to leave at 2.30 or 3 o'clock to do the, the school drop pick-up drop-off kind of run, so... Absolutely. Then there's people with disabilities, people living further out for whom travel that far, that often is really difficult. But also the other group I've been thinking a lot about is everyone with a second job, which is almost everyone. And the nature of how theatre companies operate and what we expect from theatre makers in terms of their time commitments is a sort of drop-everything approach, which means that actors all need to work these very menial casual positions that aren't creatively fulfilling, that don't offer any permanence or stability. So I actually think that by not rethinking time and by not acknowledging that they've got a workforce that's living in the year 2020, where everyone has multiple jobs, we talk about portfolio careers, for instance, as a really big component of what a workforce looks like today. Theatre companies are contributing to the ongoing instability of their collaborators' lives. So I'd really love theatre companies to be rethinking that and rethinking how they can improve the quality of life for the people they work with. And there's also perhaps an opportunity in this moment to rethink why people make art as well, because I 
think, yeah. and it's certainly it's something I've observed in in friends who are kind of working, like to use that industry term, kind of mid-career artists, for example, they've scrabbled and scrambled to the point where they're effectively making a living. At their, their, their art career has become sustainable. But then it becomes a career rather than something that you... Could, do you think people lose that sense of magic, the sense of kind of love and passion that drove them earlier mm. in their career when they, they settle into that more established phase of a career? Some people do. I think it's really dependent on how you view your work and the collaborators that you have around you. I always come back to that how to make a sustainable career is essentially to bring good people around you. And I think that's the same for how to sustain joy in your career. My career is joyous because I work with beautiful people constantly and I prioritise the people over, say, the time or the, I don't know, the, uh, the money or any of these things. My first question is like... Always, what will it take in order for me to do this joyfully? And the answer is usually someone like Katrina Cornwall or, or a great producer like Lyle Brooks or someone like that. So I, I start with who would make this difficult work of theatre a joyous experience for me. But I, I actually had a very pivotal moment quite early in my career. I remember I was sitting... I wasn't a, a student, but I was sitting watching a student theatre show and there was a professional theatre maker who'd come up to Clayton to see it and just seemed so angry to be there. And I won't say their name, but I remember at the interval, they got up and they were just furious when I said, oh, you, you do know that's the interval, don't you? There's a whole second act. And I remember just their, their fury. And I remember thinking, I never want to be angry that someone told a story and invited me to see it it's a decision to enjoy what we do and I think you know there's a lot of a lot of other aspects to it around money about exhaustion around sustainability that can make joy easier but it's also a thing of reminding ourselves every day that we're lucky to tell stories and that would be a plane going over me that's okay I while the plane goes over <laughs> you I I guess something to to proffer in return to this discussion mm. it's there's been a real awareness, perhaps, from theatre companies, but also, I wonder, in the visual arts sector as well, that we, we've put so much focus on infrastructure and so much focus on building professional structures, company structures, and, and having managers and heads of this department, et cetera, et cetera. The artists have been left out in the cold, and particularly in COVID, as we've seen, artists, many artists haven't been, and by artists, I don't just mean the people who act on stage or the people who make the paintings, for example, but I'm talking about set designers and, and lighting designers and framers and artists' models and so forth, because their income is so erratic and made up from multiple little sources throughout the year, as you say, they've not been eligible for JobKeeper because they're not officially employed by companies and so forth. Do you think there's an opportunity here for companies and arts organisations generally to rethink the, the way that artists should be more central to the theatre-making process, to the art-making process generally, not left out in the cold in, in situations like COVID-19? Oh, I'd love that. Absolutely. I mean, there's no denying, though, that theatre is going to look different in the next few years, and my, I suspect it's going to look smaller and more intimate, and that can be something we can grieve or we can embrace the opportunities for intimate storytelling and for speaking really directly to very specific groups of people. I had a music theatre class recently where I was like, all right, music theatre, got to be one of the hardest things to get back up on stage. I'm going to give you guys half an hour to come up with 
a new music theatre company that is like made for 2021 and is small and is intimate. And they came up with this incredible concept of making musicals for individual nursing home residents and kind of gathering their stories and then going in and creating a little musical number based on their life story or even recording it on iPad so that they could watch it any time. So I think artists are going to have to think smaller and be even more aware of who their audience is, why they're doing it, why they care, why their work matters, all these questions. It's not like we haven't thought of them before, but we are going to have to rethink this in some really crucial ways. And we're going to need a community that says, we want you. We want you in our nursing homes and in our kindergartens and anywhere and everywhere. I actually looked back at an old interview I did with Louis Nara in 2014 a few days ago, and he was talking about back when he was working at, I think he was talking about State Theatre Company of South Australia, actually, and that they had a company of sort of 24 actors, and you could put you know, 12, 14 people on stage. And he said just the scope of the stories you can tell is so much bigger when you can do that. So that is something we have lost as Australian artists, and there's no denying that. But theatre does intimacy so well. Theatre does care and kindness and listening and making people feel seen and heard so beautifully. And I think that's going to be really crucial in 2021, tapping into those skills. On that note, Fleur, let's leave the conversation there. But just as a, some, if people would like to think more and, and read more about what the arts could look like post-COVID, there's an article on Arts Hub. I did not write it, but Humphrey Bauer over in WA did. It's called Why the New Normal should be artist-led, and there's some really interesting provocations and ideas in there to explore. So why the new normal should be artist-led is the article, if you want to give it a read. Fleur, I'm going to ask you to stay on the line while I play a short track, and I'm going to ask you to take off your playwright's hat, because (laughs) when we return, I'd like to talk about the situation at Monash University, and in particular, the Centre for Theatre and Performance, which I understand it's been proposed that it be, quote, de-established. So stay with us and we're going to talk the impact of, I guess, one of the things, the one of the reasons for the, the conversation we're about to have is the federal government's lack of support for the university sector. But more on that in just a moment. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I've asked Fleur to take off her playwright and uh, theatre commentator's hat and to put on her kind of lecturer and teacher hat. Fleur works at Monash University's Centre for Theatre and Performance. And last week, Fleur, news came out that Monash are effectively axing the Centre for Theatre of Performance and asking for kind of, what, voluntary redundancies or making, forcing redundancies? Yeah, look, there's a few key words in there that we should probably go through. So they are proposing, that's a big word, to act these things, and we're actually in a consultation period or consultation period at the moment. The redundancies are voluntary, not for me. My my job's just gone because my contract is up at the end of the year, so if the school is just established, then so am I, um, effectively. But... 
the big question is around voluntary, the word voluntary, and that's definitely the question that our union has put to the university, is how voluntary are jobs when you call four staff members in and say your school's being disestablished and we want three of you to take a voluntary redundancy. So the thing that the union is putting forward is effectively that if these truly are voluntary, they should be opened up to the school at wide. I think the school, the arts faculty itself only needs nine of the university's voluntary redundancies and for some reason they have targeted the School of Theatre and Performance and asked that a third of them come from this tiny little school. So yeah, these, these big words like voluntary and consultation period are all not words that are usual in my vocabulary. And I, as an artist and an educator and someone who speaks really clearly and plainly about my intentions, find these words really difficult to get my head around, honestly. Now, let's talk for a moment. What makes the Centre for Theatre and Performance unique in amongst the, the various arts programs around Australian universities? Why, is it, why would losing it be such a blow? Oh, my gosh. So I, I just want to say I love this place with all my heart. It is 95% of my heart and head at any given moment. I'm, my students are who I lie awake thinking about. But the big thing that we do is it's a beautiful combination of theory and practice. So you are learning from industry professionals. You're learning playwriting from me, for instance, or acting from Jane Montgomery Griffith. But we also really value the theory and, and don't view theory and practice as separate things, but in fact as feeding the same thing. So we, we really strongly believe that theory and practice are vitally connected and they offer valuable tools for understanding social problems and devising innovative ways to solve them. We also aren't necessarily about just turning out actors or turning out directors. We're looking to make good, creative kind, caring people who can be leaders and creative beings wherever they go. Like the joy of teaching an arts degree like this is sitting in a classroom and going, what are they going to do with these skills? I've seen students go on to work in theatre companies, to create their own theatre companies, to teach students, to work with people with disabilities, to be creative beings in their own right and have their own voice. We're like so many schools at this time trot out the celebrity graduates and I feel really opposed to that as an idea because I'm genuinely so proud of whatever our grads choose to do with these skills of creativity, compassion, awareness, critical thinking, the ability to interrogate the world around them. Whatever they choose to do with that, I'm delighted. Now I'm going to speak to one of the students of the mm. Centre for Theatre and Performance shortly and I'll get that student, Gemma, to talk about the student perspective on why yeah. the centre is important and why Monash University's proposal to close it down is damaging. But what would the damage to the arts ecology be if the Th oh. Centre for Theatre and Performance were to cease to exist? Because I know that the CTP forms partnerships with the Malthouse Theatre, for example, with Fringe. It brings in so yeah. many practising artists from a range of disciplines to, to lecture, to teach and to, to help the students make work of their own. Pulling out yeah. a plug would not just shut down this course. It would clearly have, I imagine, ripples and ramifications across the sector. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I, I think, you know, myself, before I was a lecturer, I was a producer programmer at the school and I got to commission so many incredible playwrights. To get to commission a new work by Patricia Cornelius and Melissa Reeves or a new work for Kindergarten by Jolie and James is something that I have immense joy in. And then those artists, many of the times, they go on to hire our students for continued work as well. Yeah, so... You see our students everywhere. That is a, the biggest loss will be the loss of our students and will be the loss of these incredibly diverse students with broad-ranging skills and a mindset that I'm really proud of personally because, of course, it's my area of research. But I think we turn out incredibly kind, thoughtful students who interrogate the status quo and don't sort of accept, well, I'm an actor, so this is what I do and this is what is being an actor is. Our students fight for what they see as right and I think the industry needs that right now. Yeah, I. so there's our students. You see them everywhere. There's, of course, the commissions and the partnerships. We have one in a taxi as artists in residence this year and they actually made a beautiful speech when they did their performance earlier in the year where they said every other commission dried up and you kept us and you believed in us and you supported us making new work in this time. But also, frankly, like what I was talking about before the break, that is the kind of stuff that I think the theatre community needs at the moment is academics who are thinking really critically, who are kind of a little bit removed from the industry in some way and can think critically about the ways in which we can redefine ourselves. This time, this great pause, as you called it, is exactly when we need critical theatre thinkers and people who can analyse our industry and come up with really actionable ways in which we can be better. To love an industry is to want it to be better. That's the same with my students. I love my students and I want them to be better constantly. Now, I've, that's how we care. I've contacted Monash University's marketing and communications team a couple of days ago to ask them for any kind of formal statement. Mm-hmm. They've yet to supply me one, but I will kind of make sure that I give equal weight to both sides of this conversation. But Fleur, just to wrap up with you, I'm assuming that Monash University's proposal to close the Centre for Theatre and Performance, and also, we should say, to cut the musicology and ethnomusicology courses as well. Is this driven by the fact that the federal government has refused to supply JobKeeper for universities, despite the fact that it's provided JobKeeper for several private universities, but the predominantly the university sector has been left to fend for itself? Is that the, the root cause of what's happening here? Yeah, absolutely. And I would not want to be a university boss right now. Honestly, they're in an awful position. And it's not just Monash. RMIT announced something like a thousand job losses this week. So the federal government really, who who always talk about jobs, 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 they have absolutely ignored jobs that are vital to educating young Australians at this moment. It's also part of an ongoing pattern of decades of attacks against the university sector from the federal government. John Howard, famously back in his prime ministership, said, why would we support the universities? They don't vote for us. And that mentality has continued through to the Turnbull government getting rid of demand-driven funding, which made universities incredibly reliant on international students, who, of course, the vast majority of which went home when COVID hit. And that's why we're in this awful position now. If uh, people listening, by which I mean you, if you would like to support, sorry, if you would like to oppose the closure of Monash University's Centre for Theatre and Performance, you can contact Monash's dean, Sharon.Pickering, at Monash 
www.margaret.edu and you could also cc in the Vice-Chancellor at margaret.gardner at monash.edu that's sharon.pickering at monash.edu and margaret.gardner at monash.edu if you would like to protest the closure or the proposed closure of the Centre for Theatre and Performance at Monash University. We'll continue this conversation shortly with a student from Monash who will give us their perspective on what the proposed closure means but Fleur Kilpatrick thank you very much for joining me on the program today. Richard Watts, thank you so very much for having me. Cheers. Joining me on the line is Gemma Livingston, who's a student at Monash University, and she joins us to give us, just to continue the conversation we were having with Fleur Kilpatrick about the fact that Monash are proposing to close the Centre for Theatre and Performance. I just thought it'd be great to get a student perspective on what that means. Gemma, how is the the Centre for Theatre and Performance different say to if because you chose to study there rather than say at the VCA or at NIDA or something like that so that suggests that the Centre for Theatre and Performance really does something unique that other kind of universities are not offering. Yeah totally and I just want to say thank you for having me on the air it's so wonderful as a student to get to talk about this especially this year with everything that's been happening in the university sector student voices have not been really heard at all and it's I feel so privileged to get to talk today. Yeah, I chose to go to Monash. I'm actually doing a double degree in music and art, which are both being targeted at the moment. So that's a bit scary. No, I chose Monash only because there was a double degree and it got, like, I was able to study more things than one. But specifically with the Centre of Theatre and Performance, it doesn't make you specialise. I think that is one of the best things about the Centre is that it's open access and it gives you a holistic understanding theatre is, both in terms of research and the academic side, but also practical skills. Earlier this year, I did an internship with Melbourne Fringe that was totally online, and I helped them develop this online festival that they ran, uh, this VCR Fest, which was a trial run of what they're going to do later in the year. But I also got to then study different kinds of theories, and I was learning directing as well as doing some like online filmed theatre. So... It's in a really incredible place, and we've all been so saddened by the fact that it is going to be established. Now, as Fleur mentioned, this is a direct outcome of the fact that the federal government have failed to support the tertiary sector throughout COVID-19. So it does definitely feel targeted. But I'm curious to know, why do you think Monash is targeting the Centre for Theatre and Performance? What's their justification? I think the university, when they've come out and proposed it initially, that it was about low enrolment, which, of course, is a big blow to us. We don't actually have the data to back that up, and we haven't seen anything that proves this. There's been a lot of debate over in the music sector that that is actually incorrect data that they've been using to target the music research and musicology. But I think it fails to understand the point of theatre and how can affect the education sector and the arts ecology in Victoria. They've also, I think, we've heard rumours that Monash is just not interested in necessarily teaching theatre anymore, which is such a shame because theatre is so important and the culture that we have of theatre and performance at Monash is so special and in line with independent arts in Melbourne. If the Centre for Theatre and Performance is kind of axed by Monash, what will that mean in terms of finishing your degree? Well, that's that's what we're really scared about, actually. I'm a second-year student. So I've done the majority of my major at this point in time. So the best part of the degree, I'd say, is actually this capstone unit we do in our third year. And it is about putting on a full realised production. And how the degree is structured is that you spend the first two years developing skills, learning theory, testing things out 
in order to put on a fully realised production, which with our partnership with Fringe is meant to go on with Fringe Festival. And that is the thing that is getting targeted because they're trying to de-establish the major. And I honestly don't know what this would look like if this gets taken away. It makes me really scared for my theatre education and about being able to complete. I, I feel like I've been cheated because I signed up for something and now it might not be here. And I'm sad for anyone who comes underneath me or who wanted to go to Monash where this might not be possible for them in the future. As you said, you're doing the double degree, kind of music and theatre, and the part of the music courses, the ethnomusicology and musicology program, are also threatened by these proposed restructures at Monash. Yeah, so when music was first established at Monash, it was actually just as a department of music to study music, which is ethnomusicology and musicology. And what is so special about the Monash University's music degrees is that there is such a focus of what we call our context subjects, which is like music and history, music and culture, Australian music, and that in part with doing your specialisation, whether it be performance or composition and learning like music theory and like developing your oral skills, you learn the context of music, which is so important and that is what is being threatened at music. They want to get rid of the department, the people who run that, and I don't understand how they can keep running the subjects about music context if they don't have staff members to support that. It sends a a concerning sign that if the powers that be at Monash University are saying certain aspects of music are no longer important, that theatre and the performing arts are no longer important, not only does that send a dismissive message about the cultural value of art and theatre and music, but it also seems a little bit of a hypocritical decision for the heads at Monash, given that they only just recently opened a $54.3 million performing arts space. Well, fun fact about that, I have never once actually performed in any of those venues or had a chance to perform in any of them. And of course, COVID this year has made that even harder. But I think what is so hypocritical about Monash's approach to art is that we don't get a chance as art students, as performing art students, to use those spaces. And that this is something that they've been using for external, other kinds of performance, which is amazing for us to get to see, but it's not something that we get to participate in. And I think the whole student body at the CTV has been feeling really blown by this news and we feel that we aren't being looked after, we aren't being cared about and they they don't care about us. And so we've started this campaign to try and save our CTP, which is in a hashtag save our CTP. We have a website up as well and we're trying to let Monash know that we're not going to go down without a fight and we're being reasonable. We want to find a compromise because we understand that COVID has made things immensely hard and that there is a lot of money that has been lost from the university sector but we just want to make sure that theatre research and creative arts research as well as in music as well as the major won't be lost. If people would like to learn more about the campaign to save our CTP, jump online, save our CTP, which stands for Centre for Theatre and Performance. So saveourctp.com. You can find out more, including a detailed statement from the students of the Centre for Theatre and Performance. And there's also a section explaining how you can take a stand. Gemma, what do you want the Triple R listeners to do? How can we rally behind to support you and your fellow students? At Monash. Well, the first thing you can do is that if you go to our website, we have a petition that is being run by our student association and we're going to put a proposal to Monash University with our student association of what we want to see happen in this proposal period. And so if you can sign that, that just shows the solidarity that you have with our students of trying to save our performing arts here at Monash. 
as well as that, go to the website. There are emails that are provided. It's really important that we do make the Dean of the Arts here and we hear the Vice-Chancellor, but also their executive assistants so that it actually does get seen by people. So, again, jump online and go to saveourctp.com. Click on the Take a Stand button. You can email the people in charge, you can sign the petition and you can throw your weight behind the students at Monash, the Centre for Theatre and Performance. I've been talking to one of those students, Gemma Livingston. Gemma, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real privilege. Now, the closure of the centre will leave a, a kind of gaping hole in theatre ecology of Melbourne and Australia. And increasingly, Australia would be a very bleak place without live theatre to reflect back to us what it means to be human. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 